Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host Sara Davison shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Jonathan Edgley. Jonathan is a global behavioral health expert, speaker, and navigator who compassionately guides individuals and families through times of change. Jonathan and his multidisciplinary team of doctors, clinicians, coaches, and therapeutic teachers provide a hyper-personal and discreet health and wellness service to celebrities, executives, sports professionals, and medium to ultra-high net worth individuals and families. Through his own journey of battling addiction, Jonathan has made his passion his purpose, helping transform the lives of many people to live a life without limitation. So I am super excited to welcome Jonathan Edgley to the show. Welcome, Jonathan. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Great to see well, you. Yeah, I mean, I've known you for a few years now, but we haven't had a chat for a while. I know you've had so much going on. But for my listeners, please, can you put us in the picture about your story? Because I think really that's where it all starts, right? Well, it, it is. It's the whole reason I do what I do, really. It's, it's, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's my purpose and it is my passion. So um, I'm in recovery from um, drug and alcohol addiction. And I'm, I'm coming up to eight years sober. And it's been quite a, an interesting journey thus far. But it, it hasn't all been sweetness and light. I've had some really difficult times uh, particularly when I was when I was drinking and um, it all really started when I was a, probably about 13 I think when it was when I had my my first drink I was trying to impress my then cousin's girlfriend um, and it all went horribly wrong I won't go wow. into the details it didn't leave me looking particularly cool I'll, I'll tell you that much but what I realized quite early on in my life is is, is I was quite an insecure low self-esteem but outwardly quite gregarious and chatty and funny and all of these things. And I, I realized that I, I felt inside, I suppose the best word to describe it would be a, a disease, you know, with, with, with the world. You know, I didn't feel particularly comfortable in my own skin. And when, when I was this, no, 14, with the catalyst, I think, for my, uh, my addiction and it really started to spiral was when my, my mother and father uh, separated. So my mother was an alcoholic and my, my father on many occasions had tried to help her get help and get sober unsuccessfully which was really sad. But I used to get home from school and, you know, I'd find my mum find my on the floor where she, she'd passed out on the floor and, you know, and I'd open cupboards and there'd be a gin and tonic in one cupboard and a glass of wine in another cupboard. It was all of these things that I was seeing that I was, I was becoming quite, quite aware of and, and, and almost sort of normalising in my mind that actually this is just how it is. 
Yeah, I guess at that age you don't you don't really question, do you? It's just this is how life is. So yeah, that must have been very tough. Yeah, and look, growing growing up in the in the eighties, you know, um, seeing parents at dinner parties, and you know, we were out for lunch, and always doing things like that. It, it the the culture was boozy, you know. So, you know, it was just sort of like, well, this is just what people do. People drink and people smoke, you know. Um, and, but but when my when my father left. Um, it, that gave me free license, really, to drink uh, more frequently because I felt really resentful and really angry towards my father for leaving me as the eldest in the family with this responsibility of looking after my mother because I felt that it was as now the man of the house, you know. So that was really that was really difficult, but my life really spiraled when I got to secondary school with all of this going on and I started knocking around with kids from the other side of town and it was like my whole world lit up at this point it was so exciting and they were smoking and they were they were taking um they were taking LSD and smoking weed and and drinking and all of these things and I thought wow this is this is fabulous because it took away um the feelings of insecurity and the feelings of pain and the feelings of anger and just, you know, connected me with tribal, you know, and it connected me with my people at that time. And I, and I thought um, that I'd found, I'd found the Holy Grail. Wow. I mean, it's so interesting as we grow up that how much our environment impacts on us, isn't it? Because, you know, wanting to fit in, watching your mum, you know, that's all you knew. So that was Mm -hmm. learned. And then obviously the environment with those friends, you know, had you gone to maybe a different group of friends, you might have picked up maybe some different habits or behaviours. Quite possibly. Um, I mean, I, I, I believe that we're genetically predisposed so to you know, if we've got that in our family, that there is a a, a likelihood that we 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 may um, succumb to uh, an addiction, and um, you know, I, I certainly did. There is no two ways about that. And and look, I mean, in the early days, it was great. I was having lots of fun, but you know, my education was very much secondary in my life. My primary was going out and having fun. You know, what was your father like then as a role model? So he, he's a successful businessman. Um, he traveled a lot. So he'd be in Milan or he'd be in, in America, you know, he'd be all, all over the world, really. And um, having, a, having a great time. But little did I know at that point, he, he was suffering, suffering terribly with anxiety, but, but hit it very well. Um, so that was quite interesting, and we we sort of connected around that as, as 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 I got older and started to have the same kind of issues, really. But um, you know, as a role model, he was a good father in many ways, of course. And I I have sympathy for the man because I think he was just finding it really difficult to deal with the situation appropriately, and I don't feel he was left with much choice. So yeah, that that's that's my view on it. <laughs> okay I, I appreciate it. I mean that's got to be really tough um and it, you know I guess with hindsight it's easy 
easier maybe to look back on things and see it with it from a different perspective rather than when you were there as a child but so once you fell into this group then what happened next how did that evolve and how did that impact you as you grew up well it I mean it impacted my education hugely I mean it, it to the point where I, I left school with with zero GCSEs um and I was I was doing things I shouldn't be doing. I got into the music culture, into the rave scene, and you know I was out partying most of the time. I just had a total disregard for um, conforming to society or, or life uh, as, as we should. And I was watching other people going to sixth form and then off to university. And um, m- m- obviously, my father was really becoming increasingly concerned about how things were going for me. And and um, he got me a job in sales and I was good at that. You know, I was really good at that because I, I don't know whether you can, uh, can tell, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay at talking. Um, yes. <laughs> and I, I, I was doing a telesales role and, and I, and I loved it. I was earning money, um, bought myself a nice little car and, and, and life again was pretty good. But the one constant in my life was alcohol and drugs. So when you talk about being addicted, t- tell me what you mean by that. What, what does addiction mean to you? For people listening who maybe think, well, I drink a bit, you know, I'm going through a bit of a breakup at the moment maybe and they're struggling. And a lot of my clients start leaning on alcohol. You know, it would have been one glass maybe a night before, but now it's maybe half a bottle or a bottle. Where, describe to me and explain a little bit about addiction and how that works, Jonathan. It's a very good question. And, you know, for me, in the early days, I just saw myself as somebody who who drank recreationally. You know, I wasn't drinking every night um, in the beginning, but as as time went on, I I, I was drinking most nights and, and using uh, weed and, and and other other substances. But for me, it got to a point where if I wasn't drinking or smoking weed or snorting cocaine. I was either thinking about it or I was passed out. Wow. Right. So, and I was one of these people, you know, in, in my 20s, I would, I would be at work every day. I had a beautiful car, great home, all of these things, you know, outwardly well-dressed, you know, looked good. Internally um, was conflicted, was, was, was really quite unwell, but hid it very well so that's another another part of 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 addiction really we have a an illness it's a a disease that's recognized by the world health organization but it tells us every day that we haven't got it because and this was the bit for me i'm like hang on i've got a car i've got a job i'm bloody good at it i'm hitting my numbers every month i've got a great apartment um and i'm not taking heroin i'm not street homeless and i'm not drinking on a park bench out of a brown paper bag. So I am not an addict. So I was able to rationalize and justify my existence and my presentation and how I how I did what I did because I also associated with other people who did the same thing. You know, so it normalized in many ways. And it just became, you know, what it was. It's the norm. For some people 
you know, finding a coping mechanism when you're going through some kind of trauma, like obviously you were going through a trauma with your mom and then your dad leaving, you know, people start to lean on maybe alcohol or maybe drugs just to numb that pain a bit. I guess that's quite a well-known coping mechanism, a messy one maybe. Um, But for a lot of people, and I know I started drinking a little bit more, I've never been a massive drinker, probably didn't really ever drink much wine at home but then had you know a couple of glasses a night would help me take the edge off and get through you know the night um Mm. but as soon as and and I've seen this with some of my clients you know they they drink a hell of a lot more one of my clients was ordering like a crate a week of alcohol to just to get her through the week but then as soon as things started to get a little bit better with the divorce that sort of cut back and then they were able to get themselves back out of that sort of messy coping if you yes. want to call it back onto right okay I need to sort myself out let's go so where's the tipping point Jonathan where it goes from being like if you want to call it messy coping to being an addict yeah I mean it, I know people who drink too much but they're not addicts because they they can they can put it down and not have the same uh, association and cravings and um, a need and yearning to have a drink. Okay, I've seen I've seen people who were alcoholic, by the way, put down drink for a period of time and then pick it up again. I did that myself just to try and demonstrate that I was okay and to prove to everybody that I wasn't alcoholic. And I, you know, I'm not addicted to to, to substances. But in our heart of hearts, we know, and, you know, an alcoholic stereotypically isn't necessarily somebody who is drinking every day, but what happens to them physiologically, psychologically, when they do have a drink, something changes where they have one drink then they have another drink and another drink and another drink, okay? A non-alcoholic could have a glass of wine, pour a glass of wine and put the bottle back in the fridge with a cork in it and go, right, I might have another one tomorrow night with tea. In fact, I'm not even thinking about it. I've had a glass of wine and I'm quite happy. Where in my experience, and I still struggle with that concept of having one glass and putting the rest back in the fridge, it would be like, hang on a minute, I'm not putting that back. You know, I'm going to drink it. Okay. And it's that obsessive, compulsive, process that 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 happens internally when we when we take a drink or a drug or whatever it might be and it goes the same as with gambling and, and the same as with sex addiction the same as with other things that we use to change how we feel uh excessive exercising for example or or shopping yeah i'm prone to a bit of shopping myself <laughs> uh, thankfully not addicted to it though but i mean one of the things that I deal with a lot in, with my clients, but also is something that I think is is a bit of a global pandemic nowadays, is is mental health. Um, and you know, I struggle with the fact that obviously there is a lot of um, diagnosing, shall we say, of certain things like anxiety and you know stress disorders and you know all these things which now have labels. You know, for me, it's very clear. Sometimes we go through really tough times, like a divorce, like a breakup, like coming out of a traumatic relationship, abuse, like, for example, some of the things you've described in your your background. You know, 
life throws us these curveballs and as human beings we have a reaction to it which is a perfectly natural normal reaction of maybe stress or you know even at school someone's being bullied or they don't really fit in or I've got a client whose daughter um, doesn't fit in very well with school she's you know she's just very different to the other children and she doesn't like going to school but she's been labeled and diagnosed when for me that's a perfectly natural reaction to not fitting in or not being comfortable and if she was completely okay with it that might be a little bit strange but anxiety is a reaction telling us I'm not quite comfortable with this. And it's almost like your body's internal burger alarm signaling, okay, there's a problem here. We need to look at it, you know, meaning that you are not the problem. The reaction is not the problem, but there is a symptom of something. So I guess mental health for me is is, is sort of getting a little bit confused. And I, I don't know what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. And, and, and look, you know, we, we all have mental health as we all have physical health. And it, I always uh, try and liken it to if, 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 I, if I get a stress fracture in my, in my leg, right, I need time to recover and recuperate. I have to have physiotherapy and I have to do certain things, follow certain exercises, um, get a certain amount of rest, and I have to change my routine somewhat at that point in time. And it's exactly the same with mental health. You know, if something happens that we have, the body has a stress reaction to a situation, we need to just step away, have some time, seek the the right and appropriate help just to just to manage that situation and and return back to full health. The problem is, for me, um, Google doesn't help. Number one, um, and uh, there are all, almost some trendy mental health. Um, diagnosis that 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 people feel are acceptable that allow them to, you know, operate in a certain way or get some space from 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 whatever it is that's, that's going on. And I think we have to be really, really, really careful with it. People self-diagnose, whether it be with bipolar or OCD or ADHD. I often hear people say, "Oh, yeah, I've got ADHD," and it's like, mm, really, you know. How do you know that? Has that been formally diagnosed? No, yeah. it hasn't. So, I mean, obviously, I totally agree with sort of the Google self-diagnosis, but I also think that you know, therapists. I think as lay people who aren't qualified therapists, you know, quite often we put all our trust into these so-called experts to then diagnose. And again, I think sometimes that could be misplaced. So, I, I, I you know, I struggle with this sort of labelling. Um, because I think people become more like that if you give them a label. And like you said, they can rely on that. And then that becomes a coping mechanism rather than finding a solution, which is going to be more empowering to help them get themselves out of that situation. Agreed. It's not helpful. Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, 
get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. It's not helpful, particularly when people get labels. And I've met lots of people who've said, I've been diagnosed as well with this. And then on further investigation, um, they don't have what it is that they've been diagnosed with. And that label has actually hindered them in their lives for many years. And, it, and it's given them a degree of guilt and shame around who they are and, and, and how they operate. I find that deeply disturbing, Jonathan, even just you saying that. <laughs> One person has labelled them and we, but we put all this trust in the people that can do this. Now, obviously, there are some great therapists out there and some people do have some real you know, challenges and issues that you know, need the help. But I guess it's very difficult for people to know who they can trust, who they can't trust, and, you know, what to do with this information. I I agree. I do agree with you. And, you know, it's part of the reason why I do the work that I do is because a a lone practitioner, because, again, psychiatry, psychology, consultant psychologists, counselling psychologists, TBT, DBT, There are lots of different types of qualifications and people out there at varying levels. And to the layperson, they don't actually know who they need to go and see and can quite often go and see somebody that isn't a good fit, isn't suitable and come away. And I'm going to use the word more damaged than they went in. Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, we see this a lot in the family courts with the the experts. I'm doing it inverted commas for those of you aren't watching on YouTube, but the the court experts that come in because you know you, there's no vetting process for these therapists, or you know they, they have all sorts of fancy names for themselves. They, they you know some of them are great, and some of them are not, and some of them carry bias, and there's all sorts of sort of conflicts of interest. If we're putting it politely, that that really can either influence the outcome of a case or, you know, and and again, giving those labels and diagnosing and coming up with these plans for certain things that people should go through in order to become a so-called better person in this particular therapist's eyes or a better parent or, you know, to help the child. I think, you know, it, it kind of shakes your belief and trust in the world sometimes when you see these things happening time and time again. So to, to empower people listening, and it will not all be doom and gloom, Jonathan, what can people do to sort of you know, take their power back maybe and go, right, before I go running off to see, seek some sort of diagnosis from somewhere else, and, and if I'm avoiding Google, what kind of things can they do? Well, I mean, for me, we have to remind ourselves that whatever's going on for us at a point in time is at that point in time. And it will be influenced by something that has happened. In most cases, we may have had an adverse childhood experience, by the way, that we've we've pushed down and and we've forgotten about, you know, that may then be triggered by uh, something that happens at at school or university or at work or whatever it might be. And we're like, oh, my goodness, we're all of a sudden we're overwhelmed with, with a rush of feelings and discomfort. 
I think it's important to say that there are obviously some very serious mental health disorders that, that, that people have that do need to have medical uh, diagnosis, assessment and treatment for. And then there are those that are almost tiered where at a point in time they may need to consider breath work. They may need to consider meditation. They may want to consider yoga, walking. There are some really simple, practical self-help tools and things that we can do to just before we even get to that point of I've got to go and get a diagnosis, right? And being able to talk about it as well, secondly, being able to share it with somebody and say, I in confidence, I'm feeling like this. And I just need to let you know because I'm feeling alone with this. Because what happens is when people, something happens to somebody, they hold on to it. They're not straight away, I've got to tell somebody about this because they're fearful of judgment, what it is, what, what is going on for me. But I always encourage people to have a conversation with somebody close to them that they trust just to take a bit of power out of what's going on for them. The, the old adage of a, of a problem shared is a problem hard, uh, I think is, is something that we must remember. Yeah, I totally agree. I think talking, obviously, in my line of work, I think it really helps. But but obviously, also, as you said, you know, getting outside, there's some really simple things that we can do. I mean, I know during the pandemic, we weren't allowed to do much, but we were allowed to go out and go for a walk. And I think that's when a lot of people realised just what a benefit that was and started to really appreciate nature. Did you, did you see that as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, People in lockdown got dogs or got out walking. But and I think I think, yeah, me well, actually we were a bit later to the party, but um it's it's helped enormously because if you if we can get outside and we can be grounded and we can look, you know, walking around London for the last few days, so many people looking down and it's like look up, look at the beauty in the sky, you know, go and sit in a park, breathe. I mean, there are some brilliant techniques that you can learn for breathing that, that take about 30 seconds to do that can have a really positive effect on the brain and on the body, okay, that, that can help enormously to move through a situation that may be quite difficult. So, yeah, I've seen loads of people walking, loads of people running, people just exercising. Exercising is good. Yeah, exercise is definitely good. Talking is good. And then obviously looking after yourself, I think, you know, self-care, you know, not beating yourself up, that sort of damaging self-talk of, you know, what's wrong with me and, mm. you know, focusing on everything that's wrong. Again, I think that can really, like having the right mindset as well. Have you seen Have you seen clients in that situation where it's, it's quite damaging self-talk that goes on a lot of the time? I see a lot of that. <laughs> A lot of that, because again, you know, people are fearful of of, of being judged by what they're saying, and they they can isolate themselves, you know, and outwardly put a smile on and say, you know, everything's fine, which is a classic. Everything's absolutely fine, nothing wrong here. But actually, they're going through a really difficult time internally, um, and and just being able to, you know. Take the lid off that and, and shine a bit of light and have a conversation with somebody. 
I think just helps helps enormously. Uh, but the mindset piece. Now, I think that is important. But I, I also say that, you know, if people just got, right, I've got a really positive mindset, I'm just going to push through this, you know, that's great and that's all well and good. But sometimes if there is something a little bit more significant that needs some attention by, by sort of that keep calm, carry on attitude, it can actually have a detrimental effect on, on, on health. Yeah, so facing up to those issues is key. Yeah, and and again, look, I mean, it, we have to meet people where they are, and we have to treat them with love and compassion and kindness, you know, because ultimately we we we, we can sense, can't we, whether somebody's going through a difficult time, and 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 it's whether or not when we ask somebody how are you, and they go, yeah, I'm fine. Well, am I going to accept that, or am I going to say, okay? I know that you're going through quite a challenging time at the moment. Um, I'm guessing you're probably not 100% fine all the time. I leave, I'm here for you. and I want you to know if you ever need to have a conversation, you can trust me implicitly. You know, what's said in the room stays in the room. And it takes some of us to be able to just step forward and have a little bit of courage to have those conversations with people, whereas you know, a lot of people are just petrified of going anywhere near you know, I do a lot of training for private client advisors and, and, and what have you who are you know, doing a particular job but can sometimes see difficulty and, and are afraid of having that conversation and crossing a professional boundary. But I always say, look, it's, it's, it's good to talk. Uh, I, I mean, I, you're so right. And that actually, you know, it sort of got goosebumps in for a moment because it's true when, you know, when someone – you know, or, you know, I see this at a school with my son's school, you know, recently one of the fathers in the year group, he died and I, and it was so sad and so tragic. But what I witnessed was that a lot of people, even though we've known each other for years, didn't know how to cope themselves. Made It made them feel uncomfortable. So, you know, a lot of people weren't so, well, I mean, they're all very nice people and did their best, but quite often wouldn't know how to handle it or maybe avoid that situation. Yes. Um, so, you know, it was, it was really interesting. I think a lot of us don't know. And so people that are going through that grief or whether it's a divorce or a, a bereavement or whatever it is, you know, an illness, you know, because other people maybe don't know how to handle it. And maybe that could be a bit of a British thing as well, not quite knowing how to put it and how to approach it, not wanting to offend. We sort of think, oh, well, best not to say anything, but actually, you said there, you know, really eloquently, just letting them know that even if they don't want to talk about it then and there, that you're there if they do at any point. I think that's a really beautiful thing to be able to say to somebody. Sure. And I'll keep asking you <laughs> because I care about you. You know, I want you to know that I'm here to help and I'm here to support you. You know, that's really important. And sometimes we've got to put our own stuff to one side, you know, because we carry a lot of baggage we start the conversation we carry legacy burdens all of the things that we're talking about here that we carry through in our own life that stop us being that compassionate kind and loving human being because we're scared of what somebody else might think and it's like wow okay you know that's First that vulnerability all, isn't it showing a vulnerability well yeah i mean look i can say anything to anybody, if it's coming from the right place, if it's coming from my heart, I can say anything to anybody because it's said with the right intention. It's said with good intention. 
You know, it's not said with malice or, or to make somebody feel uncomfortable, you know. So, and, and, and that is what it's all about for me. I had a phone call from somebody, funnily enough, last night. He said, look, I'm worried about a friend and uh, I just don't know what to do, you know, I, you know, and uh, and I've not done anything for weeks. I said, well, are you asking for my advice? And they said, yeah. I said, pick up the phone, tell them you love them, right, and tell them that you're here for them. And if they like, I can come around and see and we can have a chat, right? And they were like, oh, my goodness. They've just texted me, literally, before we started. They're saying, I'm seeing him tonight. So nice, so nice. Yeah, and I'm hoping that people listening be thinking maybe of someone in their lives that could do with that. Because even if you're the one going through the trauma, actually, you know, helping other people will give you that love and connection. And actually, that can be very healing for you. Actually, quite often when we we do things for others, we get more out of that than we could ever really imagine. That you know, do you find that as well, Jonathan? I, well, listen, I, I live a life of service, really. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. Uh, and, and what I do is I get a lot back from that. And if I can be in that place of, of, of humility uh, and neutrality um, and, you know, help somebody uh, without thinking about myself, then, you know, that's, that's, why I'm, that's what I do. That's why I'm here. And that's my primary purpose in life. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it shines through, by the way, that it's your passion. You can really see that. Um, I know one of your missions is to reduce the stigma around mental health and addiction. So talk to us a little bit about that, because there still is a fair amount of stigma around mental health, isn't there? There is. There's a lot, um, sadly. And, you know, as I described it earlier, you know, we have physical health, we have mental health. And, um, you know, some some people are, you know, genetically predisposed to certain illnesses and um you know i liken it to you know somebody has a, a, a you know an, a, an illness um of another type physical illness then you know we're all oh gosh it's so sad how can i help can i do anything we've got a mental health issue or god forbid an addiction it's like whoa step away from the fire you know and, and i've experienced that in 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 my own friendship circle and in my own family you know, and it's 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 sad and it's difficult. So, in in terms of reducing stigma, this is about education. This is about knowledge. This is about people like me stepping forward and 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 sharing my story and saying, look, do you know what? It's okay. You know, I didn't wake up one morning, sorry, and say I fancy being an alcoholic because I reckon that's going to be a good laugh. Uh, and, and I'm sure. Give me some brilliant career prospects. Although, interestingly enough, it has, but. <laughs> well, I think when you start to turn your pain into your power, that's when opportunities open up. When you're using that power to help other people, then it can be, you know, I mean, I've done it with my divorce, like you've done it with your addiction, turn something that was traumatic and very difficult into something that can help other people. I think that's very empowering and rewarding as a career Absolutely. as well. Thank you. And I agree. And you're doing some fabulous work. And I feel very blessed to be having this conversation with you today. So thank you for that. But um, the other thing I was going to say um, is on on reducing stigma. I put a post out on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago and I said, look, if anybody, you know, we, we need to give some people some hope. Those people that are out there that are suffering in silence. Right. We need to help them. They deserve to live a different type of life. Right. And 
uh, I, I put a call out and said, is there anybody's in business, any professionals have had a, uh, an adverse life experience that they want to come on my podcast and share? Please do. And I, 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 I pressed the button at 7.30 one morning and I thought, now this will be interesting to see what we get back. And I think, and within, so within 15 minutes, I had a, a, a message back from a COO uh, of a software company saying, thank you so much. I'd like to come on your podcast. You know? wow. And then there was another, then another, I've had 25 people. And, and I think that's great that they're brave enough to do that, to talk out and speak out, because as you say, that's going to shift that stigma. I hope so. I, I mean, look, we're, it's only, we're only doing a tiny, tiny little bit. But if that message goes out and somebody listens to it and they think, gosh, actually, you know, that's helped me to pick up the phone and have a conversation or, or, or just connecting that. God, that's how I feel. And I never knew what it was. And that's how I feel. And now I. I've got an understanding of what it might be. It's empowered me to pick up the phone and have a conversation with somebody. And, and it can just, you know, it can just chain like that. Ding, 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 ding. And, you know, that's Absolutely. what and, and, you know, I'm, I love what you've done. I know you inspire a lot of people, Jonathan, and you've now gone on to create your own project. So tell us a little bit about this amazing project that you're now working on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This, again, is just about reducing stigma. So, you know, there are rehabs, there are clinics, um, and there are mental health and addiction and trauma services out there. And my experience tells me through, my, through going through rehab myself and remembering how difficult it was for me to accept that I needed to go into rehab because the addiction label was just, just too much. So what I've done is I've I've created a uh, a service um, that is a retreat, right? So retreat rather than rehab. I'm softening the language, and I'm talking about health and well-being. I'm talking about regeneration, rejuvenation, recalibration. You know, for people to be able to come and have an experience and improve their health and wellness and knowledge around whatever it is that's going on for them at that time. So I'm, I'm taking out a layer of, of stigma and I, I'm lowering the bar to entry and saying, you know, come in, we can, we can do whatever we need to do to support you, whether you do, whether you're drinking a little bit too much or whether you've been through a challenging separation or, or whether you're on the back of long COVID and you're just feeling at a particularly low ebb, whatever it is, any, any life-changing experience that you're going through, I will help my team will help you navigate it with dignity and grace right and we will give you a design for living we've combined some science we've combined some genetic dna testing with more therapeutic practices with yoga and therapy but what we are all about doing sir is appropriately matching a team and creating a very unique program for somebody that meets their needs so no longer are we square peg round hole you know, this is this is right from the very beginning in terms of nutrition, blood tests to be able to create appropriate foods um, and meals um, and looking at um, preparing, uh, repairing any sort of deficiencies within the body from a, a nutrient um, perspective as well. So we're doing some really, really cool stuff, but it's all aimed towards improving resilience, longevity 
and 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 an improvement to to life and functioning and relationships. I love the way you're changing the language around that because rehab just sounds like you're broken or there's something wrong with you rather than you're reacting to you know what you've been through in life which again comes back to that whole mental health issue again and it's yeah I love it and and people sort of just accepted it right that I've gone to rehab reluctantly because there's not been anything else on available right so people just go well that's just what I've got to do because that's what I'm being told I need to go and do no no it's not right and this is about meeting people where they are and taking them on a spiritual journey. And when I, I, I'm, I'm talking about connection back to self, because we have all the answers inside us. You know, deep down, we know. We just need some help, you know, clearing the, clearing the rubble and, and, and some of the wreckage of our past, you know, to create that space and that harmony. So how do you choose the different therapists and the team of people that you work with, Jonathan? So what I've been able to do over the last... 10 years of working in this space is that I've met hundreds of wonderful people. I mean, just everybody that I work with works from the heart, right? They are just beautiful souls. They are compassionate. They are, you know, passionate. They, they love what they do. Um, and I've been able to select a team of 30 people who cover a whole range of, of different types of therapies and activities and things like that. So when I, when I meet with a, a guest, we call them a guest as well, not a patient, not a client, they're a guest. Oh, I love that. It's a home from home, you know, uh, they, can, they can bring their dog if they wish. You know, there are, there's nobody else in the land that will allow a dog into their service. But although we're regulated as well, we're, we're allowing for that uh, because that could be a great companion but then being able to sort of understand what's going on for the guest prior to them coming in so I can start talking to them and introducing to them to the to the appropriate team and and, and then just getting that match right because they've got to be able to synchronise. Uh, How long do people stay with you on these retreats? So people, sometimes people will come for a week, um, sometimes people will come for four weeks, uh, depending on their need, what's going on, uh, what it is they're looking at doing, and then often we we would then provide a, a, a another package that that can be provided to them when they leave and they go home, just to continue with that support, whether that be a therapist or, or whether that be personal trainer or a yoga coach and, and and all of these wonderful things. We 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 stay close, and then we just move away slowly until you know they're self supporting, self sufficient, and and solid and. You know, they, they may wish to come back and, and, and just have a have a recalibration at some point in the future. So, yeah. I love that because it's so many people go away, they immerse themselves into a retreat or something like that, and then come back and reality hits and they go straight back into their old habits and patterns. So I yeah. guess this gives them momentum. Well, Well, I mean, the reason why I've done it like this is because that's exactly what happens. It's the elastic band syndrome. You, you know, you let go of it, it goes back to where it was. But the longer you keep it like that, it loses its elasticity and, and won't go back to where it was, you see. So if we are changing habits, if we are we are changing mindsets um, and, and we are doing different things, they need to be consistently adhered to and delivered and done 
where they become almost rituals. You know, for people in the morning, they might start with writing a gratitude list. You know, what, what am I grateful for today? Um, they may do a little bit of meditation, some yoga. They may have changed their diet now because they know some of the food types that don't suit them, you know, have actually contributed to poor mental health, for example, uh, or, or, or have, have led to them not sleeping particularly well or feeling bloated or, or a difficulty with their bowels. You know, whatever it might be, um, it's about being able to find a solution that works um, for, for each guest. We're also working with, uh, with, with, with women as well who are uh, menopausal, who are needing some extra support because they may not like or not wish to go down the HRT route uh, and or may have already been prescribed antidepressants, for example. So I've got a, I've got a team of wonderful doctors and, um, and therapists who, who work with women pre-menopause actually to, to get their bodies ready to get their minds ready so they're able to then you know move through that that period of their time uh, period in their life um you know safely and efficiently and effectively you know and is that done in a retreat or can that be done outside of the retreat both both so i've got i've got a i've got a team in london i've got a team in in um in yorkshire where we are uh in peaks uh, and I've also got a team in uh, in Cape Town in South Africa, but um, they do a slightly different thing over there. But we can provide that in somebody's home on a what we would call a sort of a community plan. That's easy to do. Or if somebody does want to come in and they do want some space and they they want to have the whole sort of immersive experience, we can we can provide that. So speak to the we'll speak to them. We'll understand what it is. What the, what's going on for them, what they need some help with, and we, we create a, a, a package of support for them. Oh, well, it all sounds absolutely fascinating, Jonathan, and, and like it's going to help so many people. So, you know, good luck with that. Where where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, I'm on Instagram, um, and it's uh, Instagram's Montrose underscore retreats. Uh, our website is montroseretreats.com. Um, the full website is actually going to be launched on the 2nd of May. And uh, But you can currently go onto our website, download a brochure, and get an idea of what we're doing. Health Concierge is montroseadvisory.co.uk. And that's where we can do some of the, uh, some of the things that we've just been talking around. Wow, fascinating. Well, thank you so much. I've got one last question for you that I ask all my guests on my podcast. So as you know, my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. And I think it's really important to know what makes you happy so that you can tap into it along the way, even if you are going through a tough time. So Jonathan, what is happiness for you? That is a brilliant question and a, and a lovely way to finish. So, so happiness for me is sobriety. Um, but happiness for me is 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 connection and contentness, um, and and seeing my my wife and my 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 children um, in a good place, no longer affected by by my my addictions. Oh, yeah. what I'm happiest when I'm meditating as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm sure up in the Peak District, just going for a walk is like a big meditation session. So. Thank you so much, Jonathan. You've been a fascinating guest. I know you will have inspired a lot of my listeners today. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head on over to www.montroseretreats.com to find out more about Jonathan and what he's up to. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to Sarah's virtual Heartbreak to Happiness retreat. This is a transformative combination of live webinars with Sarah herself, coupled with her empowering online video program designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com where you can also get a copy of Sarah's gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.